Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause once again to remind ourselves of the fact that when we open up your word, the Bible, that is you speaking to us, and it is you who challenges our hearts to make sure that there is no, uh, there is no rival in our hearts, that you reign supreme there. I pray that that may be the case today as we hear your word, as we are confronted with who you are and who you have called us to be in this wicked society. I pray that we might be people who respond in obedience to your word, that we may experience blessing and joy and true eternal happiness in Christ. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are getting into Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 this morning, okay? Um, But what I want you to do is I want you to keep your finger, just by way of introduction, I want you to keep your finger there in Colossians 3.18, and I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 2, okay, in our introduction. The title of this morning's message is The Wife's Liberating Attitude, The Wife's Liberating Attitude. Last week, we began a series, as you know, on the family from verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1 of Colossians. And we began by laying down some groundwork from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we were reminded that God himself established marriage. God himself established marriage. Marriage and family are God's beautiful design from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in particular. And what we see at the end of Genesis chapter 2, after the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man, he brought her, verse 22, at the end of verse 22, he, God, brought her to the man. God instituted the first marriage. He did that. And of course, we see in verse 23, the response of the man who is Adam, who is exuberant, who in poetic fashion in the Hebrew in verse 23 is celebratory as he sees this woman and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's happy, isn't he? Joyful. He's exuberant. He's celebratory. And then Moses in verse 24 gives his own commentary. Moses is the writer of the book of Genesis. He says in verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Moses talks about the permanence of marriage in verse 24. Contrary to what our culture says today, marriage is to be permanent. There is a one flesh union and covenant that's been established in every marriage. So it is to be permanent. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Unhindered relationship, unhindered fellowship, perfect, beautiful bliss, everything okay vertically with God, everything okay horizontally in the marriage relationship with one another. That's what we see by the end of the uh, Genesis chapter 2. And so with all of this happiness, what could possibly go wrong, right? What could possibly go wrong? The answer is everything, right? Everything. The answer is sin. Sin happened. Disobedience. An attack on the character of God and the glory of God. And man seeking in mutiny to put himself and herself in the throne that only belongs to God. 
Because that's ultimately what every sin is. Self-exaltation rather than God-glorification. Right? Sin happened. Sin is what went wrong, beloved. And Genesis 3 expands upon that. You know the text well. Satan tempts the woman in verses 1 through 5, causing her to, to question God's goodness and His grace and His mercy. And she fell into sin. And all the while, our, our text seems to indicate that Adam is there. Verse 6 says that he was with her. Verse 17, God says, because, speaking to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Ultimately, Adam did not lead his wife according to the headship that God had provided for him or designed for him in the marriage. Adam is held responsible for the sin of disobedience as the head and as the leader, according to verse 17. Listen, at the fall, beloved, two overarching results took place. Because of the disobedience and the sin of man, the vertical relationship with God that was perfect, that was unhindered by disobedience and sin, was broken. Broken. So that every single person born into this world is by nature a child of wrath, separate from God. Excluded from the life of God. And we see that in our experience, in that we live for ourselves, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our priorities. We are sinners by nature, and we see it in our own lives. None of us can argue with the sinfulness of man. None of us can. And the result is that we have a broken relationship vertically with our Creator. We don't live for His glory. And so that's what happened at the fall. There was a, a, a marring of the image of man. A total deprivation of him. So that now he doesn't live for the glory of God, but for himself, self-exaltation. But also, horizontally, man and woman would now have issues with one another. God's glory was challenged at the fall. And also God's divine order in the marriage of man's headship and leadership and wife following was reversed. So that man failed to lead as God designed and woman failed to follow. And there were devastating consequences, weren't there? We see those in verses 14 through 19. Look in chapter 3. In verse 14 and 15, God curses the serpent who is Satan. And we're going to come back to 3.16, but in verses 17 through 19, God punishes the man and curses the ground. Whereas before, work was God-designed. Now, work, a good thing, before the fall, to provide for his family, he will now experience in his work toil. Look at verse 17. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. That word toil there means anguish and grief and distress. The ground will no longer easily bear fruit as before in the midst of man's hard work. So that as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, vanity of vanities, right? Even in our work, we work, we work, we work all of life. And there's nothing to show for it or very little to show for it in the end of life, right? Can I get an amen to that? So true. And then the ultimate consequence, of course, was that now they would both die. According to verse 19, you were taken from the ground, for you are dust, 
And to dust you shall return. The ultimate consequence is death because of sin. Because that's what sin brings. Sin brings death. We are all on that path as human beings where we will be confronted with physical death. The issue is where will our eternal soul be someday? So as God said, you will surely die if you partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. He kept his word, didn't he? They partook of it, and now they would both die. Now, especially pertinent for our time today, look at chapter 3 and verse 16. Okay? Because it's there that God punishes the woman in a twofold way. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God punishes the woman in a twofold way. And on a personal level, it isn't that childbearing is bad or that children has, has, has ceased to be a blessing or a gift from the Lord, but now she will have more severe pain during childbirth. And secondly, on a relational level, she will now experience a struggle in her relationship with her leader, who is the man, her husband, Adam. Whereas before there was unhindered relationship and fellowship vertically and with one another, now is going, it's going to be a struggle. Look at the end of verse 16. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That her desire will be for her husband is not speaking of a, of a physical desire in the context of a, of a curse. For it's a blessing for her to desire her husband physically. It's not speaking of her physical desire, but it's speaking of the fact that by God's divine design, the man was to rule over her, and yet she is now going to desire control the reins, so to speak. He will desire to dominate her. The Hebrew language here in the last two lines of verse 16 is very similar to the Hebrew language in chapter 4 and verse 7, and I want you to look there. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, verse 7, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Here it is. Its desire, sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. There is a struggle, a conflict there that is being described by the Lord to Cain. Sin's desire is to overtake Cain, but he must overcome it, overcome his sin. Otherwise, it's going to lead him to something uh, against Abel that he's going to regret. It's describing a conflict, a struggle there at the end of verse 7. It's very similar language in the Hebrew to what we see at the end of verse 16, that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you. So there will now exist in the marriage relationship, and we see this in our own marriages, don't we? A conflict, a constant struggle that the man is to lead. And instead of leading in a loving, gentle manner for the benefit of his wife, what do men do? Either they're passive and that they've abdicated their, their leadership of their wives... And they're spiritually wimps. Or on the other extreme, they're dominating men who are dictatorial in their leadership, banging their, head, their, their, their wives of their heads with their authority. 
Neither of those two extremes, beloved, is, is God glorifying. Neither passivity, abdicating your leadership as a man, nor a domineering, authoritative attitude towards your wife are God glorifying, and you're in sin if that's the, the pattern of your leadership. Where did that come from? It came from sin. Sin. The struggle. So what I want you to see is that there's a radical difference between the end of Genesis 2, where there's joy and celebration and perfect relationship, and Genesis 3, where there's deception and an attempt at mutiny by human beings created for the glory of God, and now they want to be in charge, questioning the character of God and His glory and His goodness and His grace. There's mutiny and punishment and consequences. And death because of sin. Beloved, this is the problem of humanity. May I say to all of you sitting in here, this is your problem. Sin. Disobedience to God and your inability to be perfectly, live perfectly in conformity to God's standard separates you from God, makes you an enemy of God, makes you under His wrath. And the only way to be saved from your sins, the only way to be forgiven, the only way for you to be holy positionally is turning from your sins, surrendering a lifestyle of selfishness and self-exaltation, and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Being clothed in the righteousness of the Savior and the Redeemer. So this is the problem of humanity, beloved. We need to see the big picture. The problem is sin. You want to know why there are problems in your family? Sin. You want to know why there are problems in your marriage? Sin. You want to know why there are problems with your children? Sin. You want to know why there are problems with one another in the church? Sin. It all goes back to the depravity of man and woman. We are sinful creatures. By nature, children of wrath. And we flesh it out in the way that we live a life of self-worship rather than exalting Jesus Christ on this earth. Sin is our problem. Things are broken. Things are broken on this earth. And everyone can see this. Even the unbeliever can see it. There's something wrong with our world. What has gone wrong? And we can say with perfect confidence from the Word of God, sin has happened. Mutiny against the creator of the universe. And we need a solution to our sin, do we not? A solution. And God provides it, doesn't He? For along with the devastation in Genesis 3, there is also glorious hope, beloved, for sinners. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. In the process of cursing Satan, God gives us a glimpse into our future hope. Speaking to the serpent, Satan, God says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise you on the head, which speaks of a, of a, of a, crushing, uh, or, um, um, of a crushing death blow. That word there for bruise. He shall cru- crush you or bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel which means to cause him to suffer. Now think about this for a second. This is the the proto-evangelion. The first gospel. The first proclamation of good news to sinful humanity. 
via what he says to Satan. It is the first reference in the Bible of the hope of the coming future Messiah, that there will be a time in the future where a war will break out with the woman's offspring, who is the Messiah against Satan, beloved. And though Satan would inflict pain upon the Messiah, he will bruise him on the heel or cause him to suffer. The Messiah would deliver a crushing death blow to Satan. That's the idea there. He will deliver a crushing death blow to Satan. He will crush the serpent's head. How glorious is that? Isn't that what Jesus did at the cross? At the cross, he suffered and he died. And yet he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, exalted, and is returning. Though he suffered and died, he rose from the dead. We have a risen king. He brought deliverance from sin and hope. Listen, Jesus' payment for sin makes it possible for repentant sinners who believe in Jesus Christ to be forgiven and made right with God and solve the vertical relationship of their broken, that broken relationship with God for each and every one of us. The gospel, when embraced, and the person of Christ, when embraced, begins the reversal, beloved, of the curse of the fall for those who are redeemed, for the believer. And now having been made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, Christians can live out their God-given purpose to glorify God in all areas of their lives. Personally, in our pursuit of holiness, in our homes, in our marriages, and in any other context, such as the workplace, in our neighborhoods, wherever we live or dwell. We can live for the glory of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a restoration of all horizontal relationships as well. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And so as you turn back to Colossians chapter 3, turn back there with me. This is what we see in Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1, that the gospel changes everything. And Paul wants these believers to know that what Christ has done in their lives to save them from sin also leads to a new way of living in their marriages, in their parenting, in the workplace. The gospel changes everything. And so here in this passage, we have the instructions for different members who would have made up a typical household in New Testament times. There are three groupings, if you will, or couplets here. Husbands and wives in verses 18 through 19, which is, comprises the marriage relationship. Fathers and children in verses 20 to 21. And masters and slaves in 322 through 41, which for our context, we will draw timeless principles for the workplace, secular or Christian, from what Paul says there. Now, where does he begin? He begins with the marriage relationship, doesn't he? Importantly so, and fittingly so, for as the marriage relationship goes, so does everything else in the home, beloved. So does everything else in the home. The marriage is to be the priority of human relationships. The priority. We alluded to this last week. And both the husband and the wife have a role to live out in marriage according to this text, right? And so he begins with the wives in verse 18. And can I say this? 
How needed it is to hear Paul's words here in this text. Amen? How needed to hear about wives and their particular role within marriage and husbands and their particular role within marriage. Because, beloved, listen, as the serpent lied to Eve in the garden, so women out of the church and in the church are being lied today by our culture. Lies. Women are told that submission is a sign of of, of weakness. Women are told that to submit to men is to suggest somehow inferiority and that they are not equal to men. What does the feminist movement say? Explicitly telling women that to submit is oppressive and self-limiting. The 21st century woman is independent, autonomous, self-motivated. In other words, for her own desires and pursuits. Answers to no one. Free to use her own body as she pleases. Not to love and to serve others but to pursue her own selfish dreams. Even if that means in the use of her body, that she has the choice to put lives to death. Even if that's what it means. That is your first 21st century woman right there. And that's what you as ladies are being told. It's the air that we breathe. It's the mood of the age. But even in the church, even in the church, beloved, which is my greater concern, There is a settling for a downgraded version of a woman's role in the home. In some cases, a complete departure from her God-given design. Listen to me. Even pastors and leaders cowering away from the government now. And others are abandoning the biblical men's and women's roles that for so long they supported and now are being attacked. So they are functioning as spiritual wimps now and abandoning those altogether. For political correctness, if you will. This is our present culture, isn't it? This is our present culture. What shall we say to those things? Ladies, wives, all ladies in here. In contrast to our present age, I want to remind you of God's beautiful design for you. That in direct contrast to the culture around you, that you would walk out of here today rejuvenated all the more and motivated to live out your God-given role with joy and thanksgiving. And that is the way that you will experience the, the beautiful blessing of Almighty God. That is my desire for you, ladies. In contrast to our culture. And if you are a single woman or a young woman, this message is for you too. These are qualities that that you should be cultivating in your your life that that would prepare you to flourish in a marriage someday if that's what God would have for you. It begins now. It doesn't begin the day of the ceremony, okay? If God provides that, that young man or that man, you ought to be cultivating that hard attitude now so that you be prepared for that glorious day because things don't just turn on as far as the kind of woman you need to be when you get married, right? Amen, ladies? You must cultivate that now. And if you're an older woman, this is an attitude that that you are to be cultivating even now in your life. And not only that, but take it even a step further. You are to be modeling for younger women in the church a submissive spirit towards your husband. 
And calling young women to come alongside of you and being an example to them in that way and teaching them in accordance with Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and following, that younger women would, would love their husbands and would submit to them from the heart with joy. And for all of us, these are principles, men, for you as well, older and younger, that you and I should be informed of, supporting, and affirming in our own lives and in the church for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God, and that God may bless our church. We want our church to be blessed, don't we? Amen? We want our church to be blessed. It isn't going to happen if we chuck these instructions out and we don't walk in obedience to God's beautiful design. That's not going to happen. And finally, for some of you who are not Christians, I want you to know that your marriage is to be a picture of Christ and His church. And if you desire that your marriage would be all that God has designed for it to be, you must first be made right with God. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The foundation of any marriage that is going to flourish and be all that God wants it to be is the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. And so I trust that as we go through this series as well in these, these instructions, that you would examine where you are at personally before the Lord. And what kind of foundation are you building your marriage upon? The foundation of Jesus Christ or other foundations that are unstable? So here in chapter 3, verse 18, we see the wife's liberating attitude of submission. Submission, ladies, is not enslavement. It's not entrapment. It is true freedom for the woman of God. And I want you to see two aspects of this, of the wife's liberating attitude of submission in verse 18, okay? The first one is this. I want you to see the importance of submission. The importance of submission. And that is highlighted in verse 18 by the fact that this is a command given to wives. It says in verse 18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, oftentimes wives look at this command or other commands and they immediately get burdened and they see this as, as drudgery, right? Or the text pointing at them, which is fitting as well. But I want you to notice from our text that this instruction to wives and all other instructions in the household code um, are on the heels of verse 17 and what Paul says there. Look at verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God, the father. All of the various commands that follow to the different groups or members are to be carried out in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lifting high the name of Christ. Another way of putting it is for the glory of Christ. And with an attitude of thanksgiving, not reluctant. Not as if it's drudgery, but giving thanks through Christ to God the Father, he says. And so in that spirit of the worship of Christ and thankfulness to our Heavenly Father, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And that Greek verb there, be subject, is the Greek verb hupotasso. It is a compound word that means this, to arrange oneself under someone else or to line up under someone else. It was used of soldiers arranging themselves under the, the, their superior, the one in leadership. And what I want you to notice is that it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a command to be obeyed. Think about that. 
Oftentimes we gloss, we gloss over some of these um, features and in, in words in a um, Bible study. This is a command, ladies. This is not optional. This is not dependent upon a husband fulfilling his own responsibilities. It's not dependent upon you being in agreement with your husband's direction. Later on, he will speak about limits, or we will speak about limits of the, of the husband's authority. But this is a command to you ladies. You may not always be in agreement with where he's heading, right? Amen, ladies? But you are called to be submitting yourself under your husband's. I want you to notice, too, that this is a present tense verb. Meaning that the wife is to continually and habitually submit to her husband. Submission is not whimsical. It's not whenever you, she feels like it or the wife feels like submitting or whenever she considers it convenient to submit. Submission is continual, habitual. Submission is to characterize you ladies, wives in particular. It is to be the pattern of your life that you may struggle, certainly, and it is difficult. And there will be times in your marriage where it will be more difficult than at other times. You are called to be known for this kind of attitude, submission. Biblical submission is heartfelt. It's not coerced or forced or merely from obligation or, or mere duty, as in the military where you're given orders and there are no buts about it. It is to be voluntary. You know where biblical submission comes from, ladies? And this goes for husbands as well. It flows from your understanding from God's word of your God-given role as wife and what that means. That the more you saturate yourself with what God's word says concerning your role, those beliefs now become convictions in your own life that you own now. That become a part of you. So that is where submission, heartfelt submission comes from unto your husbands. Looking in God's word and living by the conviction of what God says concerning who you ought to be. And I say that because husbands can often lord this over their wives, right? Can lord this over our wives. I recall a couple that I counseled a few years ago in a different church. And um, it was an intense um, counseling session. And the husband, in some way, shape, or form throughout the, the, the time there, was saying things like, Woman, you need to submit to me. You need to submit to me. Says, and I've told you that. I'm glad that, that, that Kempis is here right now so he can hear it firsthand. This is what I constantly tell her. The Bible says she needs to submit to me. That's the problem. And I said to him at the end of our meeting after we dismissed her for an hour and a half, that is not the main problem. I said, you are not called to be using this command to continually hit your wife on the head with it, lording it over her. And his answer was, well, what, what do you want me to do then? She needs to know what God's word says. I said, yes, but you're always bringing that to her, lording it over her when you guys are in the heat of the battle. So you're using that in a vindictive manner to hit her in the head over, uh, hit, hit her on the head with that command. I said, how about this? Start developing a pattern of spending time together in prayer and in the word, which they didn't have. And start opening the word and being confronted first and foremost with who you need to be before the Lord. And then bring her, so to speak, to the word of God in gentleness and in love. And read those texts together so that she begins to believe that and own it. And she develops convictions from those things about what God has called her to be and to do. And beloved, can I tell you this? Years later now, 
that marriage, though they still have their issues, is flourishing. Because they began to do that. She began to even operate herself with an attitude of submission toward her husband because she grabbed the hold of, of the Word of God and the principles of the Word of God by conviction. Ladies, this is so basic, but it's so hard, isn't it? So hard. I often marvel. I often marvel that my wife, for 17 years now, has been called to submit to me. To me. With all of my idiosyncrasies, with all of my weaknesses, with all of my imperfections, with all of my sins. And yet, she constantly, constantly submits to my leadership because she does it for the Lord. First and foremost. It is important, isn't it? I want you to see this as well in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there. This is not the only place where wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says this. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the New American Standard there, if you notice in verse 22, be subject is in italics. It's supplied by, uh, from, from verse 21. So literally, verse 21 reads like this, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 22, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. The wives... The, the wife is to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. That is her motivation, if you will. And then notice in verse 23, he gives the reason for her submission. It's rooted in God's divine design for marriage that is a picture of Christ and his church, isn't it? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives are to be to their husbands in everything. She is to do this. She is to submit to her husband because ultimately marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And so she affirms his headship. It's utterly important, ladies, for you to grab a hold of this. But there's another thing that I want you to notice here in this text in Ephesians 5, 21 and following, Okay. Because oftentimes when we speak of submission, we think of wives almost exclusively according to verse 22, right? And other texts that call wives to submit to their husbands. But look at what he says in verse 21. He says, be subject or being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You know what we see there? That in one sense, we are all called to a type of mutual submission to one another, right? Right? We're all called to a mutual submission in the church, in the home, and in marriage. You can say this. We might say that submission is the way of the Christian. The way of the Christian. Chapter 5, verse 21 there, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're called to submit to one another in the church. Romans 13 and other texts, we're called to submit as believers to our governing authorities. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 We are called to submit to our leaders in the church. Philippians chapter 2, we are called to consider others as interests as more important than our own, which can only happen if we, beloved, are being submissive Christians. We will defer to one another. So it's the way of the Christian. Now egalitarians, those who fight for moral and human equality, even in the church, point to passages on mutual submission and they say, amen, yes, preach it. 
All are to submit to one another. Thus, there are no distinctions in function or role, for that would make women not equal to men. And so they propose erasing all distinctions of authority and submission in the name of fighting for human equality, if you will. The problem with this mentality is that Scripture affirms what we saw last week, uh, affirms a complementarian view of marriage, right? Complementarian view of marriage. What does that mean? That men and women are equal, husbands and wives are equal, and yet very different, right? Given their gender differences, which then leads to their roles or responsibilities. We are equal, yet different in role and responsibility. Even in the context of the marriage, this is the case. So in the scripture, authority and submission in the marriage are not diminished or erased in any way, shape, or form, beloved. While it is true that in one sense, even in the home then, we are to submit to one another, the particular way, the particular way in which husbands and wives submit to or defer to one another is very, very different, isn't it? Very different. Husbands, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following, submit to Christ and to, and to uh, their wives in the sense that they use their God-given authority and headship in the marriage to provide loving servant leadership to their wives and to their children for their benefit. Husbands defer to their wives as we meet our wives' needs. As we nurture them and cherish them and treasure them and we prefer them above ourselves. In a sense, we are acting in submission in the best interest of their needs. But we live that out in the sense that we lead the charge in meeting the needs of our families. Wives, on the other hand, submit to, their, to, to Christ and to their husbands by loving their husbands. By respecting their husbands. By affirming his leadership and headship in the marriage. There is another beautiful passage that instructs wives of the importance of submission. And I want you to turn there to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Great, great text of Scripture. By the way, next week we're going to zero in and look at this text in greater detail. Okay? Because I think that it addresses some tough issues that I know some of you ladies in this church have experienced maybe in your past. Whether it's divorce or living in a home seeking to be submissive to a man, or vice versa, you as husbands living in a home where your spouse is an unbeliever. I think this text addresses some of that, and so I want us to look at that together next week as well, okay? First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Even in the worst case scenario, when there is potentially an unbelieving spouse, or the other view of this is, in this text, is a, a, a spouse who is a believer, but they are walking in disobedience to the word. Even in the worst case scenario, wives are instructed here in First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, to be arranging themselves under their husbands. Under their husbands. This seems, that seems impossible, doesn't it? 
And it is. I walked with some of you who are in those circumstances and people in the past who have spouses that are unbelievers or walking in disobedience to the word of God. And yet God still calls you to walk in submission to that particular spouse, beloved ladies. But I want you to notice something here as well in this text that I think motivates you and maybe gives you the fuel and the fire, if you will, to live in such a way, even in the worst of situations, because there's a context here. If you notice in chapter and first Peter three, one, he says in the same way. Notice that in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. What is he pointing back to? We need to look back to what he's pointing back to. Look at back in chapter two and verse 13. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. In other words, believers are to submit to the government, to arrange themselves under the government, for there is no government except ultimately that comes from God. And then, verse 18, servants, be submissive to your own masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So servants are to submit to their masters. And all of this is to happen because of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To endure suffering. And here's the submission of Christ, if you will. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Boy, did he experience suffering, didn't he? And yet he did not attack in return. He persevered, entrusted himself to his heavenly father in the midst of his suffering, beloved. He submitted himself so that you and I could ultimately be redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed for you were continually strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Beloved, Christ modeled this for you wives, even in difficult situations that you may be in. Who reviled not in return. He was the ultimate suffering servant who submitted himself to his father's perfect will during his lifetime, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, according to Philippians chapter 2. The cross that was a a symbol of, of shame and ridicule. Jesus submitted himself to the point of death. Even death on the cross is Paul's point in chapter 2, verse 8 of Philippians. The pathway for us to be redeemed was the suffering servant in perfect subjection to his heavenly father. There's no greater submission than when you die for someone. Think about it. You're deferring to their needs, even if that takes you to your very death. That's what Jesus did. Greater love had no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Christ died for sinners sacrificially who put their faith in him. So wives, listen. And especially those of you in difficult situations, as you think about the importance of submitting to your husbands, see the bigger picture. See the bigger picture. 
Submission is the way of, of the Christian because it was the way of the master, right? Christ has not called you ladies to anything that he has not modeled for you already. He gave up his rights, the independent use of his divine privileges that we might have life and have it abundantly. Think about that. What a savior. What an example. What a model of submission, ladies. Back to Colossians chapter 3. Our second point that I want you to see here is the motivation for submission. The motivation for submission. He says, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. For wives who are in the Lord, in Christ, in the realm of the Savior, if you will. If you are a believer, submission to your husband is is proper or appropriate is what he means. It is proper or appropriate behavior to operate in submission to your husband. That phrase there, as is fitting in the Lord, means at least two things. It means behavior consistent with a life in Christ, in the Lord. Isn't that Paul's point in the context? He's been talking about believers in light of their union in Christ, in light of their identity in Jesus Christ, are to be putting off sin and putting on Christ-like virtues. In the same way, wives are to walk in submission to their husbands, worthy of the gospel in a manner consistent with the glorious gospel. As is fitting in the Lord also means that this is an issue of obedience to Christ your Lord, ladies. Of obedience. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And as we saw in that context, as the church submits to Christ, who is her Lord, so wives submit to their head, who is their husband. Your motivation and all that you do in your marriage, beloved ladies, is ultimately unto the Lord. And that is a huge motivation. A huge motivation. That it's all about worship to the Lord, to your Lord Jesus Christ. That's ultimately why you do it. It's not just to please your husband, right? Because at times he's moody and he doesn't treat you the way that he should. And yet you're still called to submit to him. But ultimately, remember that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is always there. It's worship and adoration to him. It's unto the Lord. That's our motivation or your motivation. That's our motivation for any of our roles, right? Obedience to our responsibilities. In fact, I want you to notice from our text how we conduct, how we conduct ourselves in all of our family relationships is a matter of obedience to the Lord. Look at this in verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Though verse 19, we don't find the Lord there in the cross-reference parallel passage of Ephesians 5. It says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the what? The church. Look at verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Verse 22, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the who? Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, verse 23, do your work heartedly as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
And look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Beloved, the motivation for following all of the commands and for you wives submitting to your husbands is the Lord who is Christ. That is your motivation. The glory of God is at stake, ladies, in the way that you operate before your marriage and before your husband in your marriage. That's why Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says that older women are to encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And here's the ultimate motivation. Ready? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's the bigger picture, isn't it? That's the bigger picture. And oh, ladies, if you grab a hold of that, that it's for the exaltation of Christ, ultimately, he is the one that you want to please. What change would that make in your marriage, wouldn't it? That it's as, as unto the Lord. So it's God's word that will be dishonored. And if God's word is dishonored, then God is dishonored, right? This is the greater cause, ladies, the bigger picture, the cause of Christ. Listen to this. You have the amazing privilege of demonstrating something about the gospel to the world. Oftentimes, your husband will not lead you as he should. Oftentimes, your your husband will not be worthy of your submission. Many a time, he will not deserve that you uh, um, respond to him with submission. In those times, remember that the name of Christ is at stake. That the name of Christ would be lifted high on this earth as people watch your amazing attitude, the liberating attitude of submission before your husband, even when he is treating you unjustly. Pray for the grace of God, His grace to walk in obedience to His word, to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Can I just say this, ladies? This is why you need to be pursuing Christ yourself. You need to be pursuing the Lord Jesus yourself. You have a personal relationship with your Savior. Too many wives depend upon their husband's spiritual walk. Should husbands lead? Yes. Should husbands wash their wives with the Word of God? Absolutely. Should husbands be shepherding you spiritually? Yes. But remember that before he ever came around, you had a personal relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? In most cases, you already had a relationship with the Lord. Pursue him. This is why you need to be continually reminded from Scripture of your relationship with him and and your identity. Listen to me. Your identity in Jesus Christ, your position in union with Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Before you are a wife or a mother, for those of you who are married with kids, you are a daughter of the king. Your worth or value is not in your success or failure as a wife and as a mother. You want to glorify God with, by being a good wife? You want to glorify God by being a good mother? Yes, but ultimately, remember, first and foremost, your worth is being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's where you derive your worth, beloved ladies. 
and that you have been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, and that God loves you in Christ Jesus, that God is for you, and let your identity in Jesus Christ then propel you to fulfill your role faithfully before the Lord for His glory. Christ is your Lord. And so where your husband fails and falls short, and we have and we will, the Lord will never, ever, 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 ladies, fail you. He will never fail you. He's the good shepherd. He's the faithful shepherd. He is the fountain of living water. He's the bread of life. He is your all-satisfying redeemer and savior. Your husband could never be that, and neither do we want to be that. Right, men? We fall short. So cling, ladies, to a wonderful, vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus first and foremost, that He will empower you and, and grant you the grace to obey Him from the heart and the way that you live out your responsibilities in the home. This is, this is huge, isn't it? It is liberating to remember, ladies, that the motivation for your submission is unto the Lord. It's for the worship of Christ. The worship of Christ. This makes all the difference in the world. I know a lady. I know a lady who struggled with submitting to her husband in the early years of her marriage. If you were to look at the video playing her past on a screen before being married, you would see that she did not grow up with a model of submission in the home. She grew up in a feminist environment, generally, where there was no father figure, where there was no mother showing, uh, exemplifying for her biblical femininity. She grew up watching the exact opposite of what we have learned this morning. And yet after coming to Christ, she was redeemed by the Savior. And she understood then in marriage, in the early years, that her submission was for the Lord. That it was unto the Lord. And the Lord did a remarkable work in her heart and changed her. Seeing the example of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and Him submitting Himself to the will of the Father in His life, death, and in His resurrection, made all the difference in her life, beloved. And it changed her. So that today she is a very, very submissive woman. Very submissive woman. Ladies, when you grab a hold of that truth, that it's ultimately unto Christ, it makes all the difference in the world. Amen? Next week, I want to go into 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to put some, some flesh to biblical submission, okay? From a more practical standpoint, we're going to be looking at some things that I think are going to be very helpful to us, okay? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, your word is so clear. You call us, Lord, to... Walk in loving obedience so that we may experience your blessing and the joy that you can bring in marriage when we obey your word and we live out your divine design. Oh, Father, help us to do that in particular wives in here. I just pray, Father, for your grace and your encouragement upon them that, Lord, they may recognize how important and crucial this is in their marriage, that they would be motivated by worship of you. I pray Father, that, Lord, you may encourage our older women in our church to continue to cultivate this attitude, liberating attitude of submission, and model that for younger women in the church, 
that they may grab a hold of some of these younger women and teach them and lead them by example in these areas. I pray, Father, for our younger women that there may not be pride there that may lead them to not want to invite the input of older women into their lives. Father, remove the pride and the arrogance that exists so often in young women's lives, in particular wives. And I pray for the young women of our church, single women and young girls and little girls, that, Lord, this would be the, the attitude from the heart that they would be cultivating in their hearts and lives right now that would prepare them for the marriage relationship. Oh, Lord, we pray for that. And for us as men, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to thunderously and by conviction affirm these truths from your word, that we may not cower at the culture around us and become spiritual wimps, but speak your truth in a manner that glorifies you and exalts your son. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.